This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today has been intimately involved in everything from Manumanum, Badoopadoopy, to pa 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 That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Frank Oz, so you're here. Now the fun begins. Let me start with a question that is probably everybody asks, what is on your coma reading list? My what? Your coma reading list. When you're in a coma and you want people to read to you, what books are there? Will I die after this coma? We don't know if you're alive or dead. I think the uh, collected poems of Emily Dickinson. Oh, really? Yeah. And what is it about that that will kind of comfort you? Oh, she had a... Uh, a touch that uh, touched the cosmos and the heart in, in in very few words. I do think that the work that you did in, in so much of your things, there's a lot of heart in the humor in terms of the way you approach storytelling. I, I, I guess I consider your humor to be more relational than situational. So mm-hmm. can you describe a little bit how you come to that? I don't know. I, I, I My approach to, to humor is the same thing when I direct drama. Uh, I, I just have to believe honest impulse to honest impulse. And if there's a split second that's not honest, that's where I put my finger and say, okay, that's, we, we got to look at that. So I don't think of it in any other way. I don't think at all, as a matter of fact, all I do is react. But I think it's, it's all based on uh, the honesty of the script that I'm dealing with, as long as the script is true to the characters in the world in which they had inhabit then I'm cool. But if they're not, if it's not true to those characters in which, you know, they have the world that's created, then, um, then we have to fix it. So the humor comes from that honesty. If the script is written in a good way to begin with, you know, some uh, comedians I know are working from bit to bit and all that. You're really working from truthful moment to truthful moment. Honest impulse to honest impulse. That's how I work both in drama and in comedy. And I believe that's where the laugh, not only where the laughs are, for instance, Bowfinger. Okay, within that heightened world, what Steve wrote, there's truth. The whole to me, there's truth in the whole world. If I showed a moment of our reality in that world, it would be a lie. And that movie, I would have to look at that and say, we got to take that moment of reality out and and put back some honesty for that world. Mm-hmm. So it has to start with a great script like Steve's. And once we, ha- I have that script, then I. I have to find those areas that are soft, that are not honest. That's all. And with it's a great script and it's honest, then one doesn't have to be try to be, try to be funny. One just has to be honest. Well, and you've worked with Steve many times. Uh, he's he's a guy that I very much admire in terms of his range and his literary thinking and all of that stuff. What um, what's it like in terms of the relationship between the two of you in 
from from movie to movie, obviously you have a, a friendship and some kinship in humor. So what's that like? You know, Steve, I first met Steve, I think the Muppet movie. He, he was invited and we, he did a great scene with Jim and I and playing a waiter is very funny. And then he uh, came to London and he was on the Muppet show for a, uh, a segment. And so I got to know him a little bit, but really I didn't know him that well until uh, Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, I think during that time we got to know how he worked together. And then we started Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And then he realized that we kind of worked together, you know, that we're, uh, he called me something, which I think is a great compliment. You know, <laughs> he, somebody asked about uh, how I work. And he said, Frank is uh, precise and playful. And I think that's, that's exactly what I am. I, I work uh, like hell on prep. I know uh, I'm totally prepared. And then I fuck around. Well, there's power. There's a lot of power in that. Albert Einstein said that play is the highest form of research. Yeah. 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 And so, so, so what, what I'm getting to is that because of the experience, I think tacitly we're, we always check each other out. The crew checks out the director, the director checks out the actors, the actors check, check out the director. Uh, I think by the time of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and we were having fun and we were also sometimes, you know, we were absolutely rewriting the script at that time uh, because it was a writer's strike in the United States. So uh, Steve and I rewrote the script, which is not grounded in, in believability at all. Uh, <laughs> and had a terrible ending. So throughout that process, what happened was we trust each other. So the next thing is, you know, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and House Sitter and Bowfinger. Essentially, I'm privileged in that uh, Steve just trusts me. He, he uh, it was his character's name, Rupert or something. Yeah. yeah. Rupert. Right. Rupert. When he's sitting at that table and, and goes to the bathroom uh, at the table, it's well, so you, funny. So funny. This is where Steve, you know, the scene was written in such a way that I hated it. I didn't like it at all. It had a Michael Kane picking up a chair and like a lion tamer and taming Rupert. And I said, that's crap, you know? And so we created the scene the morning of, uh, and uh, Steve came to me and said, you know, I'd do something in my nightclub act. And he showed it to me that going <laughs> to the bathroom. I said, great, let's use it. He's one of those people who is always contributing. I read his book, um, Born Standing Up. Yeah. Um, it is a great book for many yeah. reasons, but it, it, you know, it is the truth of his rise in standup and going into big stadiums and then being alone on a bus and all of that stuff. And all of the places he mentioned from the Knott's Berry farm to the, whatever, they're places I had been in those magic shops. I had been to those comedy clubs and it was very authentic. I really appreciated, you know, and he does that. He can go from the silliest, most absurd thing to, you know, being a really smart thinker and all of that kind of stuff. So I just imagine that it's quite a pleasure to play in the sandbox with him when he, when he's performing. Oh, also, yeah, he's just a decent human being. I've worked with people who aren't. Uh, <laughs> so it's not only, do I get to play with somebody who is exquisitely talented, but also somebody who's a, a good person. And, and Steve is somebody who his humor is extraordinary because it slices into language. In other words, we're talking and we'll come from this direction and his humor will all of a sudden come this way <laughs> and we'll not, we won't see it coming. Yeah. That, that's an interesting <laughs> lens. Right. When I watched the play, the Picasso at La Pina Gil play, he, you know, he's not in it, but he's everywhere in it. Yeah. Like when those monologues, you're like, Steve Martin is writing this. I can, his mind is 
doing the river dance all over this monologue. He, he's, uh, you know, I don't think he sees himself that way, but he is, he is a genius in the purest form. So when you are creating a state of play for actors in any kind of movie, um, I think about how much I liked the ensemble in Death of a Funeral and how those characters, tell me a little bit about the breathing room within the truth, right? Like when you establish it, how much are you playing together to establish scenes uh, like that? Well, first of all, I don't create a playtime. I just want to have fun. So I, you know, I don't, if they don't like the way I play, then that's tough. I'm just there to enjoy myself. If I, only if, only if I am completely and totally prepared, then I can enjoy myself. If I'm not prepared, I'm totally fucked. When I, I was doing a, a movie called Mermaids, I prepped it for two months and shot for two weeks. That was like, I don't know, I was new at movie making. It's only about third movie or something, you know. Bob Hoskins uh, played her boyfriend. Uh, this made me prep all the time. We were, so I was in a kind of a warehouse rehearsing with Bob alone. And I said to Bob, okay, now this is the street over here. Uh, and your shoe store is over there. And you're, the curb's right here. So you're walking in the scene. This is the direction you're walking. And he said, what's on the other side? I said, uh, it doesn't matter. And he looked at me and says, it doesn't matter. <laughs> From that moment on, I was totally prepared. That's very interesting. And his process does require, where's he going when he goes around the shoe every store? Every good actor has, that, has to have that. Uh, so it's, uh, I mean, not every good actor. There's actors like Michael Caine who can do dialogue to a century stand, which he often does. I mean, Michael's brilliant that way. But, you know, it, it just proved to me that I have to be totally prepared so then I can play. And so that's where we get to the play where you're, you're talking about the, the, the set on death at a funeral. I, I know pretty well, pretty well what the, how the movie's shot before I start it. And the way I work is in the studio before the set is built, because the house we used, we shot exterior for nine days. And then interior, we had to build the house where we shot for five weeks. The way I work, and I did this with Little Shop, I've done it with other movies, is I don't say, okay, go ahead and build the set and I'll work with it. What I do is I take the empty stage and my production designer mm -hmm. and I read each scene and I step to where I believe the door is. And I say, okay, yeah, this is the door right here. And that he'll mark where the door is. And then you'll, I'll continue the scene. I'll do, read all the parts to myself. Okay. Now this is the exit here. And then there's the table over there. And that's when, so when he makes it, I know where the stuff is and I can then work on the comedy and, and, and the structure and everything in my mind before I get there. Oh, that's fascinating. So you, in a way in the design have storyboarded a little bit of the distance for a crossing I, and yeah, in your head. I haven't storyboarded. I've, I've created. But I mean, that's what I meant. You, you've yeah. created a, a little bit of a vision board. So, so, that you know, yeah. so therefore, while he's building the set, I know when I work with the actors, what that set's going to be and where they're going to be already, because I've just created with a production designer. Well, that that's an amazing part of the collaboration. I mean, you're also collaborating, communicating with your editor about style and so forth, right? Even before not really, you start. Not really. No? I, don't, I mean, I know what the style, I mean, I don't, you know, it's funny, again, Death at a Funeral, which was so much fun. I don't think about creating style. I only think about what works in the most honest way. And 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 the particular 
what I believe in my work, not doesn't not be anybody else's work, but what I believe is I believe the form has to mirror the spirit of the script. So for instance, if I did a little shop of horrors, I did a lot of wild camera moves. I didn't do a lot of crane shots. I didn't want that. It was very alive and vital, the, 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 the shooting of it. Uh, if I do the score with, you know, it's a heist movie, I can't show off like that. Then all of a sudden the attention will be me. So, so I have to mirror and respect the spirit of the script, which is a pretty flat out straight movie. And then death at a funeral, you know, the same thing. I have to repeat the spirit of that in the shots. So when I work on something like death at a funeral and I play, I don't create play. I just have fun. And these were great people. What my joy was, there was a scene where uh, the priest uh, was <laughs> giving his talk. <laughs> this is after the body had fallen out. In any case, so they're all, they're all sitting there. We all know each of the characters. So my joy was not just to shoot a shot of all the people at the funeral, but to go to each person and see their glances and see their fears within that because we knew they're in trouble in some way. That's the, the detail. Joy that. right. and, and it was not play for play's sake. It was, well, we all loved each other. That was great. But it was, it was play for knowing that it's work. Well, there's so much. If anybody hasn't seen Death at a Funeral, which is the original one from 2007, right. I think, it was. it's so funny and the characters are so unique. And particularly when the actor, you know, when the drugs set in and the guys hopped up, I'm like, this guy's got to be high. Like, he's just too out of it. Like, it's so hilarious. Um, and then, of course, everyone's reacting to that. The attention to detail of how you're showing a reaction or what they're trying to do to not look, you know, hopped up or whatever. It's really a masterwork in, in ensemble in a way, you know, just how much is going on there. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny uh, when you cast, when you cast something like that, there's like 13 wonderful British actors, plus Peter Dinklage, who's American, plus Alan Tudyk, who's American. He, he you know, he played, it. but I cast them individually. Like I always do. So when you get down to the first rehearsal, you think, holy shit, none of these people have met. Is it going to work? <laughs> yeah, that must and, be. A and it's wonderful. It's wonderful when it, when, it, uh, when it is like that, when everybody was so talented. And I had also done just a $100 million movie before that, and Stepford Wives, which I was not happy with because I was not, it, I didn't follow my instincts at all on that one. And I wanted to do, uh, go back to regular movie making, just people and relationships. And so there was, it was a joy to go back to that also. So you mentioned a little earlier, Little Shop of Horrors, and I saw a, a, maybe a year or two ago around Halloween, we there was a, they rebroadcast it at the theaters through, right. um, and I was in New York when we, we all went to see it, and then afterwards you talked a bit about it, but I, you know, people take for granted how much of that movie before CGI and all of that kind of stuff was relying on your skills of puppetry and of of problem solving and so forth, uh, particularly as the movie went on and things got to be more dynamic. And I was really fascinated. So I wouldn't mind if you shared a little bit about like when you got, you know, this giant plant of which 40 puppeteers are working on or, you know, other things that are happening. Tell me a little bit about the ways that you were making those effects work practically as opposed to some kind of special effect. Well, I've said this many times. It's not, uh, I'll repeat myself, but I, I have to because it's the only honest answer I have. So when, when I said yes to this, after I wrote, rewrote it and such, 
we didn't know, have any idea how to work the plant when it was a ton, a literal ton. It was like 10 feet high. We had no idea <laughs> the other stuff we could handle. Um, so especially there's a fast patter song, not feed me, uh, which was about five feet tall, but rather mean green mother from outer space. Now I wanted that lip sync to be perfect, you know, and the trouble is foam rubber does not move that fast. It just doesn't, it, it's not possible. So here we've got this plant with a, that weighs a ton and that's got a, a head like five, four, five feet. How, how do you do a perfect links lip sync? And we didn't know, we just kept on going forward. And, uh, that was in the days of videotape and we were doing a rehearsal with the feed me plant, the size five foot. And we would rehearse it and I'd say, okay, let's just play it back. And we reround the tape. And when we reround the tape, all of a sudden the plant was speaking very fast, the, the, you know, because the speed of the, re, the rewind. Oh, so, interesting. He's, he's really talking fast. So as a result of that, what we did is whenever Rick was alone, we shot him at 24 frames per second. Whenever the plant was alone, I shot him at 16 frames a second or maybe 14 frames. And then when Rick and the plant were both in the shot together, I would shoot them at 18 frames, which means that the plant would be moving slowly in order for it to move fast when it's played. But at the same time, when Rick is in the shot, Rick has to move slowly, too. So that's how I did it. Wow. That is you had to have have some math. You had to do math. No, I guess I got a lot of help, you know, and then we had to harmonize the voice because when you shoot at different frames, the voice has to the Levi Stubbs song, which he was Levi was wonderful. That has to also sync in, in the speed that I'm shooting uh, the uh, the particular scene. So if, the great thing is that, you know, there's in the original ending, actually, there's only one shot in the entire movie that's an, uh, an optical effect. Only one. Wow. Well, I know that you were also describing that when the roots and the stems were growing and all of that, that you were using, I don't know what it what you, were you pumping something into it or like, how are you making the things bulge and the veins pop and whatever? Um, yeah, well, that's Lyle Conway, who who uh, was brilliant. Uh, he and his team uh, made it, many versions of it. For specific shots that needed that, we created a different one, a different part of it. So we didn't do the whole thing. It was very, very specific. Well, and I know, again, it from your work with Jim Henson and so forth, you know, the idea of people taking for granted, how does a frog sing in the, sing in the middle of a pond or... In your documentary, Muppet Guys Talking, you reveal some of those through drawings and so forth, showing people jammed into a can or buried in a little bit of a hole or something. There's so much that goes into making that character seem nonchalant and be able to sing while the while the actor is being tortured in a way, right? Yeah, that that we got all that from Jim. Whenever you see a character in Muppets, you have to understand that there's a human being underneath it that is from five foot two inches to six foot two inches. We have, and you have to hide that body. That's, that's all there is to it. And, and, and it's not CGI. We, we did this for years and years and years before. We just had to physically hide the body. And Jim, in that particular sequence, 
when he was in the swamp. Um, you know, this is Jim. Jim would do anything for the shot. No fear, as you know from the, uh, the Muppet Guys talking documentary. And they put him in the big steel drum and they closed it. And he had a television set in there to see what the camera saw. He's got a microphone and he's got an ear set so he can talk to uh, people outside. And then they lowered him into the water. So he was underwater for half a day, scrunched up. He's six feet one, scrunched up in that position. And he could, when he, you know, he could barely move afterwards, but it didn't matter. He got the shot. And that's how we learned. We learned, you know, there was Jim's way, which is do the impossible and don't complain and just work hard. Yeah. Sometimes you were stacked up. I know there was a, a scene oh, yeah. with the ladder where there were four or five of you behind yeah. each other. All well, when, you, when you look at a character, a Muppet character, you realize, and you think of this, that there has to be a human being there. Where is the human being? And that's this. That's what Jim had to solve, and that's the way Jim solved it without special effects. That documentary came to Austin and played at the South by Southwest, right. and uh, had a couple of screenings. But after one of them, you were, you know, you took questions and spoke to the audience. And I was, uh, that's my hometown, Austin. So I came over, and what I was really taken by was how people asked their questions to you. Really? Right? Well, here's the thing: you're used to it, but. I hadn't been really around. Always their question started with a personal story of their own mm. about how the Muppets made an impact on them, how yeah. it helped them in a rough childhood, how their family gathered around the TV. It was, it was, there was so much emotion in the setup. And then yeah. they would ask the question, right? Yeah. Um, and part of that is a testament to, to all of you in that I don't, I don't think of you as puppeteers as much as actors that are the heart and the emotion and the the feelings of those puppets are absolutely real and are absolutely, you can feel when there's a problem or there's a conflict and how that gets translated from your voice and through your hand is a really fascinating thing to me. Like just moving the eyes and moving the mouth. It's not like a sock puppet. It's really amazing. And I think that the audience brought so much to their questions because they were real. All of that was real to them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for years, uh, people have come up to me and it's, you know, I, it's hard for me to process. And again, it's me because Jim isn't here and Jerry Jewell isn't here. And, you know, I'm, I kind of represent them to a degree. I'm a fence post representing a lot of people, you know, and projected. So South by Southwest, for instance, I mean, there was a woman who was just sobbing and with a photograph and she couldn't even talk. She just wanted me to sign it. And then another woman outside after the show came up and said, uh, Fozzie's my hero because he never stops trying. Mm -hmm. I'm dyslexic and I can never stop trying. I mean, stuff like that. I can't process, you know, I can't possibly process that. Yeah. I can't imagine. It happens, it happens not my character. It happens to, Dave Gold's characters, to Jerry Nelson's characters, to Jim's characters. Jim always felt the characters were, were symbols. Mm. And everybody sees something different in that symbol. Well, and I know you speak highly of his leadership in terms of what he did, how you could all see his his working process. And you in the documentary, you speak of Jerry Jewell as the writer behind a lot of the Muppets content, right? All of it, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then you just mentioned Dave Goals, who I also know, and I yeah. know you. I know the two of you in conjunction with each other, which yes. is one of. Uh, in my conversation with Pete Doctor at Pixar, he talks about having the two of you on Inside Out, <laughs> yeah, and casting you as the security guards, I guess, yeah. inside the brain there. Yeah, it was such a delight to hear him talk about the two of you, and he said the material they wrote just wasn't holding up anyway compared to the what the two of you were doing live. And you have such a interesting dynamic in terms of, I mean, maybe you can describe that, but I've witnessed it at creative retreats and vacationing and so forth that you, the two of you live this kind of antagonistic approach to conversation. Um, yeah. Affectionate antagonism, you know, and we love each other. We know each other for 40 years for Christ's sake, you know, and work together for that long in the worst possible conditions. Uh, but something about Dave and me, are kind of <laughs> I can't explain it, uh, but we're just doing a, for this children's show. And they got an Emmy for this show. In any case, so they created, uh, he created two characters and he was ho hoping that Dave and I could do it. So we, we did the audio on it, you know? It was just basically uh, two third graders uh, being stupid. Right. <laughs> and we can do that very well. For some reason, we feed each other on, on that. You do. And you know what makes me laugh is that we all look forward to it. Like like if Dave's in town picking up groceries and you're on the phone with him trying to describe the ice cream you need, it's hilarious. Like yeah. there's like it's all like just leave him alone. Just let him get the ice cream. And you won't, you will not, you you no. got to torture him. No, of course I have to torture him, but you don't see the other side, how he tortures me. You don't see that. He plays the innocent. <laughs> he does. He yeah. definitely is the put upon yeah, guy. Yeah. You have no idea the other side. <laughs> <laughs> what's the get to you thing? Like, what's the thing that would get under your skin, you know, in the affectionate way? What's the approach that he's taking? I think he needles me sometimes about age, although he's almost as old as I am. I think it's my language. If I make a mistake, if I, if I go like that, he'll say, oh, what was that? Why'd you do that? You know, just anything, anything to get to me, anything. So if I say uh, hat, uh, I'm sorry, Pat, he'll say, Frank, you said hat. Why'd you say hat? That was a stupid fucking thing to say. You know, he will just yeah. get me at any time possible. So yeah. he looks very innocent to everybody else. Yeah, that is funny. Well, listen, because we have mutual friends and we have had the pleasure of being in the Adirondacks together, one of the times that I really like your spirit is when you're dealing blackjack. Oh, I love right? it. I yeah, it. so I want to talk to you about because the, there seems to be a little bit of a power and you know playfulness and all of that in in dealing blackjack. So tell me just a little bit about because you've got your cigar and you've got the cards and everybody's got the chips and we're not playing for money. The chips no. are, but everyone seems to take it as if it's a million dollars in front of them. I know it, we're we're not playing for money at all, and it's hysterical when I see <laughs> our friends wonder if they should bet one or two chips. It's not money. I said, put in $500,000. It makes no difference. <laughs> they can't. They just can't. But essentially, uh, when I deal, yeah, it's a power play. I want I want to be have power over all my friends. That's basically pretty, pretty much what it is. No, I, I mean, I, I, I remember my dad loved blackjack, and he, he taught me blackjack. And as a matter of fact, I played when I was uh, when I was not of age, legal age yet, because I came in. When I was 19. We did a, We were doing a show at the International in Vegas for five weeks, which is now the Hilton. I think it is still. You know, we had two shows, a, a dinner show and a cocktail for five, 
five weeks. And so I was playing blackjack when I wasn't old enough, but I was performing, you know, and I love blackjack. I love, I, I love it too. I love anything to do with cards. So where do you go for a laugh? Like just what, what makes you laugh on a go-to basis? I don't look for laughs. Um, I think I have a spirit that where somebody else will see an action on the street and think, oh my God, it's serious. I may look at it and say, it's funny. <laughs> I don't look for laughs. I just, uh, I love it when I see something funny on, on the tube or something, but I, I don't know. I don't really go for laughs. I mean, I, I'll, I'll try and find a good funny movie like anybody else with, with my wife, but other than that, I, that's pretty much all I do. Yeah, and I know you guys also like documentaries, right? Aren't you uh, documentary yeah. watchers? I love documentaries, yeah. Yeah, and I met you through your wife, Victoria. Um, I remember her asking, could she bring her friend to a showcase I had at the Hilton in New York or something? And she was very cagey about who her boyfriend was. She was cautious and is like, I hope it's okay. I go, yeah, fine. Any friend, you can bring any friend, you know? So afterwards, and I did a short little 15 or 20 minute thing, but she introduced me and I, I knew who you were, but I was like, you couldn't tell me, you couldn't give me a hint. Like you couldn't. It's weird. You know, the uh, I, Frank Oz, uh, all of a sudden I, I become this legend. And so it affects people just the name sometimes. And I never see myself that way. I just, I'm just who I am. So I never, I never think of myself in any way whatsoever, but Victoria tries to protect me because people will try and. Of course. She's super respectful of that. And I know that she was a big part of producing uh, Muppet guys talking. Well, it was her total idea. Yeah. And bringing you guys together for yeah. what is an amazing reunion. Again, I hoping people have seen it, but if they haven't, I think you've got a, website or a way that you can get to it. We're still kind of leaving it up for people because they haven't seen it. MuppetGuysTalking.com. Yeah. And I think you can buy it for like, I don't know, nine bucks or something like that. Yeah, it is great. It's, it's worth a watch for many reasons, but primarily to see that long-term friendship. And although it's called Muppet Guys Talking, I know Fran Brill is a part of that. And she was one of the early voices as well. Yeah, I, I call women guys also, but Franny in that, and you know, it's so wonderful because I, She's been with us for so many years uh, and she's great. And, you know, we're talking about being one of the guys. She said, I never felt I was one of the guys. And I said, what are you talking about? You're one of the guys. <laughs> she came with a woman's perspective, which was new to us. We, you know, because uh, we had never sat around like this before. It's the first time in like 40 years and we found out things about each other we didn't know. And so I realized that for Franny, from her viewpoint as a woman, saw it differently than we did. It was good. Yeah. Well, I just encourage people to watch it for all of that, right? For the history, uh, for the inside stories on the Muppets, for the camaraderie. You know, each time that you work on a major project, you join a family in some ways. And it's quite a unique relationship, even if you don't see each other for years and years of time. Yeah, it absolutely. We pick up where we started. And of course, the, the sad thing is that the other loved ones who are brilliant aren't with us. Jerry Jewell, Jim Henson, et cetera, you know. Right. Their work lives on, though, in a really big way. And, and yeah. I think you pay a nice tribute to them in that because you acknowledge all of their contributions. And, you know, I can just see the affection in it when you guys are talking. Oh, God. Yeah. 
we couldn't be so mean to each other if we didn't love each other. <laughs> that's that's going to be your pillow to crochet and sell in uh, gift shops. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of families can relate to a certain amount of that. But you worked on a, a project recently, I guess a few years ago, which was the Derek Delgadio piece in and of itself, which was running in California for some time. And people kept saying to me, you got to get there. You got to see this thing. And I live in Austin and it was complicated. Then it moved to New York and I go to New York more frequently. So I remember knowing about it and being headed that way. And you said, I can't talk to you about it. You have to see it. I can't talk to you about it until you see it. So uh, I did see it a couple of times and was blown away by the art, the theater, the storytelling, the honesty and a lot about it was as a theatrical experience, it was really moving. And I know that the movie that was being built on it was supposed to be at South by Southwest this year. And yet because of pandemic uh, pause, it has been moved. It'll be on Hulu in January. Okay. And so I'm interested to see how it translates to film because it, it was such a, an immediate response to see certain things. I won't spoil anything in this conversation, but I do because I have a background in magic and a background in theater, all of the elements were coming together. And yet the emotional impact of some of the ending when he's naming people's uh, professions that they chose and so forth, it was a tearjerker, right? And the unusual idea of having somebody who bought a ticket to the theater leave and come back the next night, it was so counterintuitive to what, you know, that, that was really interesting stuff. Yeah, well, that all came from Derek. That the soul came from Derek. You know, I mean, uh, when he asked me to direct it, I knew Derek for about a couple of years before that, and we were friends. But he asked me to direct it, and he had all the stuff there, but they're all disparate pieces with no connection, no emotional connection, nothing. So that's what I helped to do. It's a good relationship because uh, I certainly couldn't have done created this because this came from Derek's soul. On the other hand, he couldn't have presented them the way I did because I don't know why, but we connected and uh, it's powerful. It's hard to talk about because people who hear this have not seen it. Right. So I won't really continue on it. And actually, I can't give things away because I don't know how to describe it. I've never known how. Yeah, I, I didn't describe it when I sent people to it. I said, if you trust me at all, yeah. you will spend a night in the theater seeing this show. Right. And I said it to a lot of people, I said, I, I don't want to say a thing. I want you to go experience this and then we'll talk about it. Yeah. What was extraordinary to me, I would see it every week for you know a year and a half. And it was always on purpose. I wanted Derek not to act. I just wanted him to talk. And on purpose, I didn't want him to talk until he absolutely had to talk. Until he couldn't not talk. Mm-hmm. which created great silences, which is, was, but, they yeah. weren't, but they were full silences to the degree that people would lean in. And it was extraordinary. Every time I saw that show, which dozens and dozens of times is that you could hear a pin drop. You, nobody moved a muscle, nobody coughed. It was extraordinary. And then first to see people come in and then 80, sit down and 80 minutes later, they're crying and they don't know why. Yeah, I'm telling you, uh, the second time I saw it at the end when he looked me in the eye, which he does to each person, and he said, you are a father, I was just like, yeah. my tears were just like welling up. Exactly. You know? It was well, extraordinary. This was, 
this is so much from his soul about the most important thing is that for us to be seen. Mm, yeah. Not the identity that people put upon us, right. but our true selves. And there's much more layers than that. But it, it, it's powerful when he does it. Absolutely. The stuff that he did, there's some plenty of foolers. Like this is, it's not presented in a way. And and I know that he doesn't consider himself just a magician and all of that because he just happens to be using those things for story and theatrical effect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the magic, I, I had no interest in doing a magic show. I couldn't, I said, you're doing a magic show. I'm not going to direct it. Screw it. I have no interest in doing that. But then we both realized that our kinship was we wanted to break things. We want to break form. What I worked on very hard with him because he was used to it, it was patter. We took out all the patter. Anything that acted like it was, you didn't sense any magic patter there, did you? No, no, not at all. In fact, I, I have to say, and again, I'm not spoiling anything. It was a delight to have him walk out and deconstruct what what the theater was, what the lights were. Right. He, he just dismantled it to say, right. I'm a guy talking. Right. It, you're looking this direction, you know, the, 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 the monologue that establishes that we're in this together, we're on a little bit of a journey that we don't know where it's going, um, was really, it felt not like show business. And that was really, uh, I like that a lot. If it was show business or if you, it was theater, then we lost. Right. It, because it was not theater. It was an experience. If yeah. it was theater, then there's an artifice there. Uh, if there was artifice, uh, I mean, for instance, to the degree that I, I wouldn't allow him to have a mic because that indicates performance, right? That was so a good it, attention to detail. It just had to be him talking because he does that exquisitely well. He was valiant every night because he had to put his heart out there every single night. It wasn't just memorizing lines. That was his life on the stage. It had a big impact on me. When I, when I did my show last December called Pat Hazel's Permanent Record, when I was writing it, I was writing it in a very comic insurance policy way where I was writing a bunch of bits. And by the time it got in front of the audience and I was into night two, night one, I didn't really enjoy because I was doing a thing to get a response and they were having fun. And afterwards it wasn't satisfying. And I cut 20 minutes out of it the next night. And I just told the story, yeah. which turned out to be much more about my father and other things. And I found myself crying every night in the show and yeah. it was vulnerable and it was, um, it, 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 I'll tell you what it wasn't. Once I accepted the mission to do it that way, um, it felt so authentic that I didn't care what they thought. I just felt like I have a story to tell. They can like it or not like it. But if the show is about revealing all my foibles of the past, I need to do that, right? I need to do it in right. a way that, you know, isn't so confessional that it's cloying, but it was important that I be real. And and I will say that people like um, Derek and Mike Birbigli and other folks who are genuine storytellers that come from a real voice made an impact on that, the, that choice. And how did you sense the difference between your performance and your more authentic, uh, authentic uh, storytelling? What did you sense differently in the audience? Well, here's what's interesting. The first thing was, I felt before, once I made that choice on day two, I was never nervous about the show or telling the story or caring what they thought or caring if they applauded. Like, like I, I really came into it as if it was, I was just talking to a family member or something of that nature. So it changed how I presented it. And then within it, whether I had 300 people or 29 people on some nights, 
I found that their response was pretty similar, which was uh, not manipulative in any way, but if it was um, solemn, they were with it. If it was, if the pathos was there, they were, they were interested. And it just gave me, there was a security to the idea that this is a story I have to tell. I mean, they bought a ticket to it and they certainly could get up and leave, but the biggest difference was that I took the intermission out on day two. On day one, the intermission made it feel like show business. The comic exit I had on it was that I was facing some of my greatest fears, including telling the truth about things. And I absolutely was terrified of singing in public. I never sang as a kid. I was never doing any Christmas caroling. I mouthed happy birthday. You know, like I really dodged the, the anything that had to do with singing. And I knew that I had to sing at the end of every show. I had to sing a song to close the show if I had the balls to put it out there, right? And somewhere else in the show, I talked about the sort of comic fear that comedians have a fear of of uh, having tomatoes thrown at them if they bomb and so forth. And how could that even be real? So I had established a little bit of that in the early part. And when I sang at the end of the show, ushers came down the aisle with these baskets full of, uh, full of sponge tomatoes. And when they started putting these baskets into the aisles like church, people were looking at him like, surely we're not supposed to throw these at him, right? And and I sang as best I could, which was terrible, but I really, really tried. How did and the audience react? Once the first person threw a tomato, they were just all throwing tomatoes, having the greatest time. They couldn't care less if I could sing or couldn't sing. The connection was really strong. And I just kept singing through it all. And they were applauding, I think, because I was. they knew I was braving a firewalk because I did talk about the difficulty of even trying to audition a musical in high school. You know, like it came full circle, which is I don't care and I'm going to try my hardest. But the comic device of the tomatoes also gave them a weird pleasure of I've always wanted to do something like that. Like they were getting away with something, too. Yeah, but I, I wonder if you didn't give the tomatoes out and if you actually sung and allowed that ah. to come out, would it have been uh, really valuable? I, you know, I, I, you're right. I have gold records and platinum records from all the work I've done with, uh, you know, Muppet Show and Sesame Street and everything. A cab driver can sing better than me. I mean, right. I, I am <laughs> off key, but it doesn't matter because of the character and the honesty of it. And that that that's more important because there's not many people who can really sing. Bing Crosby couldn't sing necessarily. He wasn't a great singer, but you believed him. The manner in which he did it was, was was wonderful, you know? So I think you probably would have been surprised the audience reaction if you actually went for it. I, I think I was terrified. That's why I went for the, sure. the comedy out. But I agree that, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was, I went as far as I could go. Like I, there was a moment in the show where I talked about being afraid to stand naked in front of an audience and I begin to take my clothes off and they were more afraid than I was. And, uh, but I did have them in the program. There was a blank page that said sketch Pat nude. And that there was a thing in the program that indicated we were going to be doing it. And when I got to that moment, people were, they had two responses. One, some got their marker out and sat up straight and leaned into it. And the other people are like, surely I have my kids here. Surely you're not going to take your clothes off. Right. It was a very confusing moment for everyone, but um, it would have scared the hell out of me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I'm not an attractive yeah, guy naked. You naked <laughs> would have had me screaming, running out of the theater. <laughs> right. So I did need to keep them there. Yeah. For my singing. Well, let me ask you about a couple of other things that are kind of personal. I want to know your strategy, techniques, and philosophy on napping. Napping. Yes. I, I take napping very seriously, but I think you're a napper. Am I not right about that? Well, I didn't used to be, but now that I'm older, I, you know, my dad always used to nap and I think, oh, Jesus. And all of a sudden I'm napping, but it bothers me because when I wake up, I, there's this feeling of disorientation for a little bit. And it's, it, I have to give myself 15, 20 minutes to get back into the groove of the day. So on the one hand, uh, that's what happens to me. On the other, I have to listen to my body and say, okay, if I don't take a nap, I'm feeling that I'm not going to be feeling good later on in the day. So I have to kind of listen to my body. I, When I'm working, I never nap. If I'm doing a show, if I'm doing a, a movie, I'm picked up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I come back at 11 o'clock at night, and that's the way it is. But when the pressure's not on, I love pressure, I guess I just nap when I, I listen to my body. Well, I, I started the habit of it when I was performing late at night. And so I always looked at it as a reset, right? I didn't irresponsibly nap for hours or, you know, do it after some day drinking, but I found a way for other people, it's meditation or whatever, but I really needed a reset in order to, for my wit to be sharp. And I understand that. that. Sure. You know, another thing that kind of came up in my conversation with Pete Doctor had to do with him knowing your father before he knew you. Yep. And I may have just read this somewhere, but were your mom and dad both puppeteers or involved in some way in that? When they were in Antwerp, my father was Dutch, my mother was Flemish. Uh, when they were in Antwerp, I have pictures and I have characters, the actual characters that my dad would make and carve and my mom would dress. I don't know to what degree they were giving shows in Antwerp before we immigrated here. When we got here, uh, they really didn't give shows. They, it was more of a social thing with all the other puppeteers. And I, you know, my mother was still doing costumes for people. And in all the years, I don't even remember one show they did. It became more social. Well, Pete described your dad as, first of all, he adored him. He described him as a guy that would always take the opposite side of an argument, no matter what. One weekend, it would be one side. The next weekend, he would change me on the other side. Does that impact the way you approach when I think about you and Dave having your character exchanges and stuff, you challenge people. Yeah, I do challenge people. I find I get more interesting responses that way than just the normal shit. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I do this all the time when I go stay in a hotel and I check out and the person asks me, did you enjoy your stay? I am damn well not going to say, yeah, it was a lovely hotel. And so I say, no, I'll never come back to this hellhole again. <laughs> and all of a sudden they're alive. Well, it's wonderful to see people alive when you challenge them because they're just in the same rut. Yes, it was a wonderful stay. Thank you so much. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to do that crap. So when you challenge people in a supportive way, I think you get more life out of them. And to a degree, they're, they're happy about it. I do that all the time. Yeah. I think about a time we were all sitting around at, there was a house in the Adirondacks where you sent away for something at Amazon, you know, it was kind of a remote place. And this big box came. It was so hilarious that this mysterious box came that I would say might have been three or four feet long. I asked you guys, guess what's inside it. Right. 
there was 45 minutes of fun in that because it was an unusual item. Nobody could have guessed, you know, in a thousand guesses. So it kind of became a little bit of a 20 questions after we made attempts. But what was so hilarious about what it was, it was called My Ping Pong Buddy, I think. Right. And it was a big stick with a basket or something where you could pick up ping pong balls so you wouldn't have to bend. It was fantastic. It did the job incredibly. But there's an instance where if I had just taken the box and opened it, we would have missed 45 minutes of fun. But instead, I challenged you guys and things became alive. Oh, you did that many times, including your obsession with plentils, which was the <laughs> lentil snack food or something yeah. that, that would arrive by the box load. We wander through the earth so many times. You know, we, we wander around thinking that we're alive. And it's not necessarily true because we're, we wander through the same neighborhoods in our minds that we've always watched. So it's important to kick ourselves out of those neighborhoods and realize, you know, that, oh, I've been doing this without knowing it. It's almost like when you're driving and it's a long distance and five minutes later, oh shit, I'm still driving. And you've forgotten you're daydreaming, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it's almost like that. We live like that so much instead of being aware. Well, I think we're checking a lot of times, checking things on the to-do list and going through this pattern of, check my email, do this thing. You do that too. Yeah. Well, Leonardo- well, I, I avoid doing it, but yes. Right. Leonardo da Vinci, instead of having a to-do list, I understand had a to-learn list. And he was always- Dropping names of your friends again. I know. Well, he used to, we went to a coffee shop called the Renaissance Arms. So I know you guys were tight. Okay, let's keep going, right? He <laughs> hadn't even thought about painting until I brought it <laughs> up. <laughs> He was doing chalk art, and I'm like, yeah. you you could do ceilings. Leo, um, maybe you could have, I don't know, maybe a guy stand there with his arms out. That's your idea, right? I love those Leo stories detail. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when he was on the first episode of this podcast, <laughs> we were just talking about invention and creativity, and yeah. he, he said, maybe I should have a young upstart like you on. <laughs> That's what he said. As we sort of wrap things up, I guess I would ask you as a director, we're recording this in 2020. How would this screenplay end if you could fix it? You're assuming there's a problem to fix. For 2020? Has it been going just perfectly as a story? Well, you're talking about 2020, yeah. how it's going to end. You're saying what, how I feel as a director, if 2020 was a script, how would it end? Yes. I think... Trump and Biden would kiss. I'd have a long 360 degree shot all around them. <laughs> well, we'll have to have alternate endings. Probably, yeah, that 360 all swirling around as they kiss with the music heightening and then it just go to black. Right. <laughs> I think that's a perfect ending to this conversation. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of you investing the time. I know that you're a busy guy with a million things going on. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely important. I think that's the most I'm important very, thing. very, very important person here. Let's be sure we let everybody know that. I invite them to go look up your credits on their own. But I did watch Indian in the Cupboard the other day, and I really love the attention to detail, everything from the loose sock when the kid was being carried to bed. Now, and that's interesting. You know what? That was me being a dad, and that's what I did with my kids. And, and that loose sock, I made sure that that sock was half on. And as a dad, you, only dads can realize that, right? Yeah, I thought it was amazing. That was a director's choice right there. Yeah, yeah, it was a dad's choice, yeah. Well, you're the best, Frank. Thank you so much for, for being with me today. Thanks. Thanks for listening. 
Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot .fun because .com is not fun. Cheers. Call the creep.